Well, this is the third and the final in our series on prayer. Thank you. Okay. And uh, Tim, you you preached uh, three weeks ago on how prayer is hard. And oh, uh, yeah, well, no, yes. like, I wasn't here. When it's hard, when, 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 when it's hard. Whether actually it is hard. Yeah, you should, you should talk now. <laughs> I wasn't there, uh, but sorry. I've been helping out at a couple, uh, a couple of churches recently, so um, I've been away. But And then last week, uh, can anyone remember the key points that Rob told us from the Lord's Prayer? Our prayers should be... Humble and audacious. Awesome. And he mentioned how the Lord's Prayer is kind of like the, the core. This is our bread and butter of praying. But there's lots of other prayers in the Bible um, and that we can learn from. And today we're learning from one about how to pray for other people. And it's from Ephesians, that passage that was read out by Megan before. And um, it's a letter that's written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. And it's a great prayer. And I want to start us by thinking about um, being in Ephesus, and I want to get you to imagine uh, being um, a member of the church, maybe in a little house church. And uh, I'm going to kind of uh, paint a bit of a picture. uh, Before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our gathering together today, and we want to thank you for each other. And we want to thank you for your words that we can read and uh, be taught by regularly. And we pray today as we gather that you'll encourage us and you'll teach us and you'll spur us on uh, to pray for one another. And uh, thank you for shaping our prayers uh, today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Persis uh, looks around at the church that's gathering in her home with her husband, Aristarchus, in Ephesus. And that little church meets weekly in the shadow of the gigantic temple to the goddess uh, Artemis. And nearby is the city library, which can seat about 25,000 people. And everything about Ephesus uh, speaks of, of hope and riches and power. Uh, Roman campaigns, the trade of the empire, the construction... And as she looks around at her motley crew of 25 people who are meeting that day, she might have been tempted to feel a little bit ordinary. There's uh, Epinatus over there who gave up his lucrative business uh, selling Artemis idol figurines to find himself with the only job that he could get, working for a cruel market vendor picking up the old fruit and vegetables. And there's Afia over there whose husband has died of illness recently. And up there entering through the courtyard is the slave, Tyro. Um, How he ever manages to get permission from his owner to come, she doesn't know. His attendance at the meetings is so fragile and uncertain. But Persis, she... she, um, refuses to feel threatened. She refuses to feel disappointed. She refuses to feel like this little group of people is insignificant. Because last Sunday, Tychicus had arrived with a letter from the Apostle Paul. And this Sunday, she was going to read Paul's prayer for their church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those who believe. Sometimes being a Christian can feel pretty ordinary. That's why the uh, letter to the Ephesians is such a great letter, because Paul opens our eyes to the awe-inspiring expanse of what God has done for us in Christ. And today we're having a look at this prayer for the church and how our prayers for one another in the church can be shaped by this passion and Christ-centeredness. You know, so often uh, we struggle to know how to pray for one another. We might say, how bless so-and-so, or if they've got an illness, we might pray that their illness might go away. But, but there's so many more things that we can pray for one another. So let's start by having a look at verse 14, no, at verse 15, as we see how the Apostle Paul starts his prayer for the Ephesians. And uh, do you see, it's not surprising that in many ways he starts by giving thanks to God for them. And he does that because he has heard two things about them. Firstly, that they have put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And secondly, that they love all of God's people. That is, they love all other Christians. Now think about it. Those two things are absolutely crucial. It's by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have forgiveness, that we have new life with God. And I guess the genuineness of our faith is shown by the outworking of our love for others. Not just love for our close friends, not just our love for the people that we meet in church or even the wider church, but all Christians. And Paul has seen that in them and so he's thankful because he's heard of their, their, their faith in the Lord, their, their love for other Christians, all other Christians, and that shows that these people are united with Christ. If you've got your Bible open and you turn to the section that's just before that, um, you can read about how uh, he's painted a picture of the heritage that these believers have, the riches that we have when we are united with Christ. These things are part of our inheritance. He's, he's told them that if you're united with Christ, then you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chosen by God, adopted by him as his children, our sins forgiven, have God's grace lavished on us, have, have made known to us God's plans and purposes for the whole world, and he's marked us with the seal of his Holy Spirit. So it's no wonder that Paul gives thanks for them, because he hears that they have faith in the Lord Jesus, that, that, that flows forth in love for one another, and that shows that they have been united with Christ. And so as a result, he knows that all of those spiritual blessings are part of their lives as well. And so he's thankful for them. And he gives thanks to God not just once, not just twice, but in verse 16, what does he say? I have not stopped 
giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That is, whenever, whenever he speaks to God, he thanks God for his fellow believers, these, these Christians in Ephesus who have come to faith, that they, that they have love for other Christians and that they've received all these spiritual blessings. And friends, isn't that consistent with God's attitude himself? Jesus says that when a person comes to faith in Christ, when, when a sinner repents, there's a, an, an outrageous party in heaven. God is excited about it. That The angels are excited about it. And we should join in the celebration, thanking God for our brothers and sisters who have come to faith. And that's our first question for us this morning in our prayers. Do we regularly thank God for our fellow believers? Is that a mark of your prayers? Have a look around you this morning at the people you're sitting with, the people on your left, the people on your right, those who are in front of you or behind you. Do you see people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see people who love other Christians? If that's true, wow, then these people have been united with Christ and have received every spiritual blessing. Doesn't that make you want to thank God to party with the angels in heaven? Friends, let's make time in our prayers to thank God for the work that he has done and is continuing to do in our church and the lives of our fellow believers. But that's not all. Paul goes on to ask for a series of things. Have a look at verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, some translations use a small s for spirit here, and it's sort of taking it as a reference to the human spirit, sort of taking it as a prayer uh, to, to ask that, that people will be filled in their inner being with wisdom and revelation. But I think it's more likely to be a big S spirit, a reference to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is, we know in the scriptures, is the one who is the spirit of truth, the spirit of revelation, the spirit who opens our eyes up to truth. We can't know anything about God unless the Holy Spirit does that. And that's the sort of thing that I think is, uh, is here in this translation. That may give you this, a spirit of wisdom, this, this spirit of wisdom and revelation. And he's praying that they might know certain things. What does he pray that the Holy Spirit would be doing? Have a look at verse 18. It's an absolutely beautiful expression. So that with the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you might know. The eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's a wonderful thing that Paul wants God to do for us. That the Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of their hearts. 
When we speak about the heart in modern language, we uh, think of the heart as the seat of the emotions. We use phrases like, he really spoke from the heart. But in biblical thinking, the heart is much broader than that. It encompasses the emotions, yes, but it also encompasses the will and also the thinking, your intellectual life as well. So Paul is praying for other Christians that the hearts, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. He's praying that all of these avenues of their understanding about God would be enlightened, that that the Christians would know certain things about God more and more, not just intellectually, but also emotionally and experientially as well. So the whole human person that we are as created by God would have a deeper and deeper sense about the truths about God. And don't we need that? And he, and he goes on to focus on three particular truths about God that he wants them to know in this deeper way. And the first one in verse 18 is that you might know the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. He's called you here, has chosen you before the foundation of the world, the previous passage in Ephesians says. Not because you choose God, but because God chooses you. God calls you to himself. And when he calls you to himself, he calls you to hope. Hope of a new life. Hope of a new creation. So Paul is praying that these Christians might know in a deeper way this hope, the magnificence of the hope that God has called them to. And see, I guess it's one thing for us as Christians to know that in our heads. You know, the the things that we know in our heads. We know that God has promised to raise us from the dead, to give us new resurrection bodies. Uh, We we know that God has promised to make a new creation one day, a new creation where there's no more crying or weeping or suffering or pain. Uh, We know that God is going to bring us one day into the fullness of everything that God has for us. And then we know that God has promised And he's promised that we will one day be in his presence and able to enjoy him together forever with all of those who believe in Christ. But friends, I don't know about you, these things are so majestic that sometimes it's hard to get our minds wrapped around that, for it to make an impact in our lives and to transform us. And in our day-to-day lives in the world which we live in, Sometimes we only ever have glimpses of this hope and the glory that's to be revealed. And it's a view that's tainted by sin and and corruption in the world around us, our own sin. And it's hard for us to comprehend this great hope that God has set apart for us. And a person that I think captures this uh, so well 
is uh, C.S. Lewis, and I think someone else uh, read this quote out in a sermon at Mary Creek one time. He's written, uh, C.S. Lewis, a great essay, um, if you get the chance to read it. It's called The Weight of Glory. That's uh, W-E-I-G-H-T of glory, not the W-A-I-T of glory. And he wrestles um, with the big idea of this great hope that God has in store for us. And uh, because it's so hard for us to grasp this, this treasure of biblical hope, we, we turn to inferior hopes to satisfy us. And this is what he writes. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is offered by a holiday by the sea, we are far too easily pleased. It's so true of us. If we lose our grasp of this biblical hope or fail to grasp our true hope, we turn to other things and it's as if we're making mud pies when we have a far better offer. And so can you see why praying that other Christians will have a deeper and deeper understanding of this great hope that God has called us to um, and our vision set on that so that we are shaped by that and live for that? But there's another thing that he wants them to know in verse 18. Have a look at it. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, at first glance, that might look like he's praying for exactly the same thing that he has just done. But look carefully at that little word before it. It's not our glorious inheritance. What is it? God's, it's, it's his, it's, it's God's glorious inheritance. So it's not something that we own, it's something that God owns. And what is God's rich and glorious inheritance? Us. It's his holy people. It's believers. We are God's rich and glorious inheritance. That's who God is waiting for, for his inheritance. Can you see how valuable we are to God? Can you see why Paul would think to pray that they would know how treasured they are by God, how precious they are, how, how they are the, the apple of God's eye? You know, sometimes as a church, uh, as Christians, we can often think that we are worthless. We can put ourselves down. We can have our vision filled with our own inadequacies and the inadequacies of our own sin. But no, Paul prays that they'll know how precious they are in the sight of God. Is that something that we know as a church at Mary Creek? Is that something that you know as an individual? Is that something that you want other believers around you to know about themselves? That they are the riches of God's glorious inheritance. What a difference it would make to our self-perception as a church, to as individuals, 
if we understood ourselves rightly through the eyes of God. And again, it's not just knowing that intellectually, it's knowing it spiritually and emotionally and experientially in your inner being, in our inner being, how valuable we are to God. No wonder that Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of their hearts that they might know this truth. But there is one final thing. The third thing he wants the Ephesians to know, for us to know, in verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul wants them to believe how great God's power is. Um, We sing some fantastic songs which sing of God's greatness. Do you recall the the little kids' song, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty? We sing the adult versions of those kind of things. You know, we sing the songs, we say the words, but how deeply do we know the truth? Are we confident that in every area of our life we know that God is in charge? That God can do the things that he has promised to do. Whatever the things in our life as a church or as individuals. You know, here at Mary Creek, we've been talking about our money to be able to expand our, our work with, with children through, through Beck. Um, we're seeking to talk to our friends and neighbours uh, with the good news of Jesus. And, and that is not an easy thing. But it's important for us to know in all of those things, the good works that God has called us to do in the world, that God is powerful and that God is in charge. And it's also important for us to know that God is powerful to protect us. And as you go along in the letter to the Ephesians, he talks about um, spiritual warfare that Christians have enemies that are not of flesh and blood. And that's a pretty frightening thought, or it would be uh, if we didn't know that God is far more powerful than any of these spiritual enemies, any of these powers and authorities. And Paul assures us, he wants us to know more deeply the incomparably great power for us. And just to make sure that we know how big that power is, and just to make sure that we don't doubt it, he goes on to demonstrate a proof of God's power. Verse 20, how do we know that the God is powerful, that they're able to do anything and everything in every area of life? Because God exerted this power when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's the demonstration of how big God's power is. It's more powerful than death. It's more powerful than sin. And he showed it by raising Jesus from the dead. But that's not all. It goes on. He seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present world, but also in the world to come. So whatever power there is, you think of a power, think of how big it is, whether it be spiritual, whether it be physical, whether it be here and now, whether it be a future one, it's absolutely dwarfed in comparison to Jesus' power that God has displayed. 
But there's more in verse 22. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him, that's Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So it's saying that Jesus now is raised and he's seated at the right hand of God. He's in charge of everything. And he's been given that uh, position for what reason? For the sake of the church. That's for us. He's been put in charge for our sake. He uses his power for our sake and has given Christ that authority. He's the body, he's our head. And that brings us to our difficult last verse. We are the fullness of him. Christ fills the church with his spirit, with his grace, with his gifts. So as Christians, we stand in a special relationship with Christ And he is the one who's at the right hand of the Father with all authority. He's the one with all the power and he will use it for the sake of the church. What a difference it would make in our lives, in our lives as a church, to know a deeper understanding of the power that is available for us in Christ Jesus. The power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is made available to you and I. Well, there's Paul's prayer in summary form, what he prays for them. Uh, And what he prayed for those original brothers and sisters in Ephesus, it's uh, a prayer that he prays that we can pray um, for each other. No matter how small we feel, we know that the church is never insignificant Being a Christian is radical. Being the church is being at the very centre of God's plans uh, for the universe. And I'd like us to think about shaping our prayers for each other here at Mary Creek in our our prayers for one another as individuals and as a church, for fellow believers who are across the world. We've been reminded that our prayers should be filled with thanksgiving when we pray for each other. And that we can pray for certain things for each other. That the Holy Spirit would light up the eyes of our hearts so that we would know the hope to which we have been called. What a glorious, rich inheritance we are to God and the immeasurably great power for us. This is a sort of knowledge that provides ballast for us in our lives which lifts us up and gives us a perspective on reality. I heard a a story of a rhinoceros at a zoo, and although it was living in a very large paddock, with plenty of space to roam around in, the rhino would just spend all its time moving around in a sort of a figure-eight pattern, a tiny sort of figure-eight pattern, Why? Well, the reason for that kind of odd behaviour was that it had been rescued from a circus where it had been enclosed in a cage and a very sort of small ring. So even though it actually had been liberated, uh, the bars of the cage may well, might, might as well still have been there. Friends, you and I, the church, our fellow believers, can sometimes have a restricted and a small vision. And we need God to light up our inner eyes so that we can see the full extent 
of what God has done for us and has for us in Christ. I don't know, um, this uh, passage that I have for you there, you might like to write it out or in a way that you can actually pray for other people. Um, I wrote it into a prayer that I'm going to pray for you. Let me pray this for you now. Father of glory, thank you that these uh, fellow believers at Mary Creek have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they love other Christian believers. I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of their hearts so that they would know the hope to which you have called them, what a gloriously rich inheritance they are for you and the immeasurable greatness of your power for them. Amen.